82%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Paul Zimmerman. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the future of the Fringe Club in Central, which could have a new operator after its lease expires next April. Located on Lower Albert Road, the 131-year-old former dairy farm building has hosted live concerts, shows and exhibitions over the years, showcasing local and international artists. Non-profit organisations, including the current operator, are now being invited to submit proposals to the Culture, Sports and Tourism Bureau to manage the venue for a three-year period. The Bureau says it's looking for an operator that can, quote, maintain and develop the premises as a unique arts and culture icon. So how important is the status of the Fringe Club in promoting arts in the community? How can its uh, stature be maintained or enhanced? And after 9.45, we're going to be talking about the history of tattoos. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message uh, on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can uh, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And joining us uh, now in our studio here in Kowloon Tong, we have uh, Jason Wordy. Good morning, uh, hi. Good morning, a historian and columnist. Uh, and a few other guests will be joining us uh, uh, later in the show as we go along. So, um, uh, Jason Wordy, uh, thanks for joining us here. Um, as uh, <laughs> was Jason's, the silence. Jason's yeah. radio. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, as we said uh, in the intro, um, the, the the Fringe Club, uh, uh, you know, it's an important part of Hong Kong's uh, cultural scene, Indeed, obviously. Indeed, absolutely. Um, so, um, well, I mean, how significant is it, you know, as part of our uh, arts and culture infrastructure? I, I couldn't really comment on the Fringe Club, but I'm rather more interested in the building it's housed in. Mm. Because the thing with that is that really is culturally and significantly and historically very important. Mm with the antecedent of it, because it leads on down to an ice trade, to the manufacture of ice in Hong Kong, the availability of fresh water, refrigeration, a dairy farm, all those sorts of things come in. So it's actually really, really interesting from that point of view. It's an important part of the history of, uh, of, Absolutely. of Hong Kong, obviously, and it, and it seems like a, you know, a very appropriate uh, venue to have a, you know, for an organisation like the Fringe Club. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, right in the middle of town, so of course for something which would attract people, of course, right in the centre of town, absolutely, yeah. And so the FCC is, uh, the Foreign Correspondents Club, is it, that's half of the building that's, or is it two separate buildings? That's part of the building, it's a, late, a later, later edition. It was a later edition. The, and by later you're talking about five years difference, or pre-World War One. So, so what was it, it was an ice factory, an ice storage no, no, space? I, what, I, uh, ice storage and refrigeration, because the whole story of ice goes back pre, prior to Hong Kong, really into the 1820s. And this is the importation of ice from North America, Massachusetts mainly. Well, they had to bring it all the way from four, the States. F- four months. Four months. Four months. How, how so, do you stop melting the ice on four, four you months? Because you cut it with an expectation of 40 to 60% waste in transit. Oh, my. Yeah, so there was ice storage depots in Madras and in Calcutta and Singapore and all over. Uh, so Hong Kong, right from the very beginning, had an importation of ice. And that continued until the 1870s. 
because then with the invention of the ammonia compression process, it was possible to make artificial ice locally. So Hong Kong started to export ice. So that was where it gets really interesting. Mm. And then when you've got an ice manufacturer here, it means you can have a dairy farm, you can have importation of other things. It's really, really significant. And, so an, an ice house street, that's where the location is of the building. So, so it the was original the ice house was down on the corner. Mm. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating, because if you look at photographs in the 1860s, and you see an ice storage depot, and you think, right, that's ice coming four months away, other side of the world. That's globalisation. So they hold, they hold it up from the ships down at the harbour all the way Correct. up. And then, Correct. And then uh, what was, so there was a distribution centre, really? The that was time? a distribution centre. So you'd, you'd have a standing order for ice and be taken away and be used for refrigerating whatever it might have been. So have you ever uh, had an exhibition there or your stories about uh, the no, stuff you write or, or participated in any of the, uh, the cultural activities? When did that start? There, and that, that's in the 18, uh, 1980s, uh, I understand. 40 years. 40 years ago, now. yeah. Mm. 83. But again, as I say, I can't comment on the Fringe Club, just on the building and the history of ice. I mean, that's itself what interests me. And the FCC, how long have they been there? That, 19, 1980s, I think. I'm not a member. Mm. No, no, mm. no mm. idea. Mm. Mm. So um, just thinking in terms of uh, preservation of, uh, of culture and, um, in Central, so we've got uh, just along the road there's the uh, Taekwon, there's got the police married quarters a bit further out, and then down at the bottom uh, the old uh, Central Market. So um, are we sort of getting to the stage now where we've got like a, you know, a nice collection of, uh, of these old places and... and well, are we I doing mean, in that I respect? mean, one would like to think so, mm. that there would be a walking possibility between one and another and another. Yeah. Um, of course, that requires um, imagination on the part of those who um, are responsible for organising these things, and one may wish for more of that than there perhaps is. But, uh, but yes, there's certainly nodes there that can be built into. Mm. Mm. But the thing, thing, as I say, going back to those buildings and mm -hmm. the whole story of, of ice, ice manufacture, globalisation, I think it's, it's under, under-represented and under-discussed. Mm. Would you have a, so the, now looking at uh, potential uh, getting a new organisation or at least a bit for the operation of the, uh, of the fringe part of that building, um, would you think that it could be another use, like an exhibition on ice? Or? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there should, in my view, be a, a permanent exhibition. It doesn't have to be a large one. Exactly on that. Mm. Because it's if we talk about international, cosmopolitan, global citizens, and what does that actually mean? It means things coming from other places, often a long way away, and not necessarily things we would expect mm. to think about today, like ice. Mm. Okay, we, we've got a caller on the line, Anna. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Um, with regard to the Fringe Club, sorry to raise some slightly more prosaic matters, but no one has said what kind of a lease the government is going to provide, because mm. as has been misreported in the Chinese press that this is in fact something to do with the FCC. Well, it's not, as, as it, it's the case that the FCC occupies the north part of the building, the mm. north block. It's actually two blocks, and the south block is the Fringe Club. Now, the FCC pays a commercial rent in the region of give or take $700,000 a month. The Fringe Club has, since the 80s, when Rachel Cartland, former presenter on this show, was a, I think, cultural secretary or some such job, don't quote me, but she arranged for them to have an NGO lease paying $1 a month. Now, these leases are architectural heritage leases, and the FCC, of which I'm very well acquainted, and so are you, Jim, is obliged to repair, as part of the lease, the building. 
Now, if you look at that building, you'll see that the FCC's part of it is very well maintained. Sadly, not so much the fringes part. And they have been running commercial restaurants in there. So if you remember M at the Fringe back yeah. in the day. So the question, and they've recently closed some or not all, I'm not sure quite the status at the moment. It seems very fluid uh, what's going on in there. Are they commercial restaurants or what? So the question is this, what is going to be the status of the lease? Because for sure you can't afford to do uh, repairs of an architectural heritage building on one, you know, on, on not running it as a business. So how can an arts hub, which is just an arts hub without restaurants and all the rest of it, generate enough money to do the maintenance? So what kind of lease is it? Is it still $1 a month or is it commercial rent? And no one seems to have answered that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we haven't seen uh, any details. Uh, uh, we did invite the current operators uh, to come onto the programme. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, they weren't able to, but uh, hopefully uh, these matters will be uh, clarified as time goes on. Um, do, does anybody happen to know about... Uh, there was a time where you could go up to the roof of the Fringe Club and they used to show, like, movies on a Friday night, um, but that stopped uh, several years ago, and I haven't quite been able to find out why. There was a balcony on the roof where you can actually have a meal. Yes, uh, you could sit outside the mm-hmm. uh, the top uh, the top restaurants, and then uh, but then walking up to the open space that they had right on that uh, on the round the corner, uh, that has been that has been stopped. It wasn't. Uh, I don't think it was structurally safe, or it wasn't actually in the uh, designated use for that rooftop. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also got guys. It's also got the air conditioning units on the roof. So, mm-hmm. as you know, Jim from the FCC that ended up all having to go on the roof. So I think that seriously reduced the amount of space up there anyway. Mm-hmm. OK, all right. Uh, um, yeah, uh, thanks for your call, Anna. Do, do, do you have any other point to make? No, just if you're speaking to people, could we're all wanting yeah. to know what is the status of this lease. Yeah, sure. All right, we'd better all make right. some phone yeah. calls. OK, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, thanks for that, Anna. So... Um, yeah, Paul, when was the last time you were in the Fringe Club? Well, we used to, to Designing Hong Kong used to organise uh, Saturday uh, uh, conferences on uh, urban planning issues, uh, whether it was uh, public open space or uh, it was uh, the, the future of the, uh, the central market. And um, it was always great working with uh, the Fringe Club at the time. Uh, it was Benny Chia and uh, Catherine who were running the, uh, the operations. And it was, uh, I think they were the stalwarts of that building. Uh, I, I believe for the last year there has been a change in the actual management of the French club, uh, Catherine and uh, and Benny stepped away um, in in some uh, it's a sense of dispute that was going on um, mm. between the uh, the board and themselves, and they stepped away. So the last year, uh, it's been really be run by a different group, mm. and so they uh, running different types of uh, shows. Mm. And of course, it has suffered in the last three years because of COVID, and yeah. uh, so the uh, the get going at the uh, at the French club has been slow. It is an interesting building, isn't it? I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of venues within it. I mean, you've got, you got to, like a, a theatre, which is, uh, you know, good for, for drama. There's exhibition space. There are uh, bands uh, certainly used to perform there on a very regular basis. And, of course, the thing is, if you go in there, the, the original features are there because it's all tiled out and the, the tiling 
looks to be either original or pretty close to it. So, I mean, that's that's a heritage feature within itself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's lovely features in there, mm. and there's an, actually, as Jim said, I mean, there's uh, lots of it was a multiple use yeah, space. Yeah. So you had a little cafe downstairs, you had exhibitions mm. uh, upstairs, you had a performance area, then you had the cafe, the, uh, the cafe on the corner, and then you have upstairs you had an exhibition space, a theatre. Uh, a restaurant, and then you had the uh, the outdoor space mm. on on the on the roof. So it was a multifunctional uh, space, and I think the the character was really built up by Benny and Catherine over the many years that they ran so many different programs there mm. uh, at the um, you know at the um, um, I would say. Um, maybe less profitable end of the arts world and um, and they did a great job to make sure that uh, a lot of people had an opportunity to perform and, and show their art. Well that's the thing, I mean if you've got a, um, venue opportunities that, as you say, the, the less profitable or the unprofitable end, it gets a, a wide variety of, of interesting things to see or, or, or observe, yeah. So it will be interesting to see with, uh, who's going to win the bid yeah. and, uh, and what's going to happen then in terms of the programming on that space. Sure, well let's, uh, let's have a word with uh, Robert Rogers who's joining us uh, now, he's uh, uh, a special events uh, professional, a principal of Events Man, and a lecturer at uh, Hong Kong U Space. Uh, good morning to you. Oh, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, w- uh, well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, what would you like to see done with the Fringe Club? Well, I, I, for, for me, uh, I I just remember the the old Fringe Club back from the old days, from the the late eighties and 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 the nineties, when when the Fringe seemed to be in its heyday, and it was doing things like the fringe festival um and and it was really a a mover and shaker in the in the art scene um since they had the is 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 benny i've sort of lost track is benny and Catherine? they 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 left there a while ago didn't they yeah Yeah, they did yeah yeah because when they when they were running it it was i don't know it, it it felt like it had something Something, some je ne sais quoi about it. Some, it was really, really had a had a, a goal for for the arts, and it really was a great, a great meeting spot. Um, the old theater was. I, I performed in there many times. I used to do uh, used to do performance as well, and the uh, um, the old theater was fantastic with the trap door in the back. So for magic performances, we could make people disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after all of the remodeling, to be honest, I, I've you know I popped around a few times, but it never had quite the same vibe that it once did. But um, was the, was that COVID or was that the remodeling? Uh, that was the remodeling was was years ago, wasn't it? Five five, five years ago, yeah, more. Just before COVID, so probably yeah. about, about about the time that, that Benny and mm. Catherine left, I believe. Um, yeah, and for, and for for me at that point, I mean, I, I went to have been to a couple of things there. I've seen a few things, but it, it seems to I don't know why, but it seems to have lost the um, uh, the, the that that specialness that, that that attracted. I I I wonder if it might be something to do with the fact that they've. With their, they're having this three-year lease. In order to plan anything that's going to create a, an arts and, and community and event space that's going to keep on going on, three years is, is not much time. Um, it, it, you know, if you're trying to trying to build community, that takes that takes years to be able to to get get people going. I mean, they, you know, I think they they tried to do that by keeping some of the memories by having the collect. You know the Colette room and such like that, but but that three years. I, I I wonder if perhaps you know they should be looking at 
uh, you know, making it a 10 years with like, you know, check-ins every every three years to make sure that you're doing what you said that you were supposed to do. Um, How are you going to make your choice between bidders? I mean, if it's not a, you know, if we don't want it to be a monetary uh, bid where, you know, the highest, mm-hmm. the highest bidder wins the space um, and you want it to keep it in our space. And how do you evaluate different options and or different bidders? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it is a it's a huge puzzle, isn't it? The the I think you need to decide exactly what you want it to be, um, uh, and perhaps you have like a building management company that takes care of the outside surface of it and makes sure that everything is working and running and all the tiles are in place and such like that, and then you have the you know the the inner workings that's keeping the the arts art side going. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think you need to decide what what you want it what you want it to be and then from there uh allow the allow the management to to kind of to work at it so you would suggest that the venue has to be financed by government and the maintenance financed by government and that the sort of the operator is free of that cost and the uh, Mm. has a more flexible Mm. way for running it not necessarily not necessarily uh you know you think it can make enough money to upkeep that building because i think that was the fringe group's problem wasn't it uh, they, they certainly could, but they were going to have to charge. They're going to have to charge a lot more, and it's not going to be, you know, an art space for for grassroots arts anymore. Then it's going to have to to move up and be, you know, like like much of the rest of Central. Uh, personally, I, I think having a grassroots uh, space would, would is is a great idea. You know, they did they did uh, for the arts. They did the um, the cattle 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 project. What was the one that was over in Kowloon? They had the um, oh, the cattle uh, depot. The cattle uh, depot. Uh, that was uh, not a why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that was that was seemed to be starting to grow. It seemed to be starting to get community happening. And then they decided, oh, time to redevelop it. Let's put up some housing. Um, uh, if I, I'm not seeing any long term um, planning for you know creating a, a strong arts community or creating a strong um, uh, you know, event events community. They, they, they you know, year, years ago, I, I was asked. Uh, it was it was around the time that they were re reevaluating the um, uh, the um, the excuse me. It's around the time that they were reevaluating the the mega events fund. Um, I was asked by the um, by the guys that were doing the study on it to come in and come talk to them. And so one of the things that we were talking about was I was suggesting that. If you want to create events in Hong Kong, then you need to need to kind of make it. Uh, you, you, you need to need to get from the grassroots, and you need to let things grow naturally. Mm-hmm. Things like Cock and Flat, for instance, which you know started out you know almost 20 years ago, and then you know they've grown so large that they've actually sold off now to one of the largest uh, one of the largest event companies in the world. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> there's so, a challenge with with um, encouraging grassroots organisations is you can't necessarily control in which way they will go and particularly with anything involving arts and culture the sort of people that are going to have that as a, a career base or something they're going to do they're going to be rather I shouldn't use the word but I will independent minded uh, yeah, so, so yeah. they'll think for themselves you can't necessarily dictate what they're going to say uh, they may well have an ex- exhibit that oh dear this is a, a little bit edgy to somebody so that that then becomes a, a challenge and a problem uh, and in particular when the sort of people who really do have something to offer with this have very often just decided to either fall quiet or do something else or go elsewhere so mm-hmm. that becomes a challenge and becomes a problem um, you're, you're absolutely right 
because you can have, have an absolutely fantastic building, but if it's filled with third-rate stuff and um, and the people have really got some imagination and thought, I think Manchester might be a better option. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, a bit hard to know, tell a good people, Hong Kong story like that. I mean, we would like to, and we all try, but it, it does get made a bit hard to do that at times. Yeah, absolutely. People, people. I mean, people have been gathering gathering for years, and part of part of that gathering, you know, we create this social network within that, and the, and then you start to even identify mm. identify yourself and be, you know out of out of gather, out of that gathering. Is there a so, good call for a focus for uh, for the future French club? Um, uh, the music focus, um, uh, you know, get, basically uh, be a set of small stages uh, for uh, for performance art, but uh, for music based performance art. Um, is, is there a good call? I'm just thinking about all these warehouse uh, uh, performance areas up in Kung Tong where uh, various bands play, uh, and uh, you know, these, there have been issues with these uh, fire safety yeah, and so yeah. on of these buildings. But um, yeah, no, absolutely. A, you know, always live a live music space for you know for kind of an under 100 crowd. We're, you know, we were. I think we talked about that on the on one of the last shows about when you're talking about venues. Uh, it certainly is something that we're we're missing. Um, and, and live music, of course. I'm, Unlike um, other forms of, forms of performance art or, or visual art in particular, it's fairly safe. I mean, you sing it and it's gone. Um, it's something isn't sort of stuck up there on the wall, which might attract negative attention. You know, you might have an, an, a mural that predates to social movements with people with yellow hard hats on, but never, uh, never mind. An owners' committee gets uh, gets cut up about it. Um, so if you don't have a painting, you can't be be annoyed. But sing a song by gone. Unless it's Absolutely. a certain sort. Yeah. So is this Absolutely. then a test? Is this a test now for government in terms of we're all going to see in the next couple of months once they pick the winner uh, where they're going with uh, their uh, kind of like uh, their well, one, ha- uh, one has to wonder where we're going to be culturally. We have to wonder, don't you? Yeah, but don't forget, don't forget there is a song that's going around right now that, that they're desperately trying to get rid of off all mm. platforms. So music mm. has a lot of power mm. and art itself has a lot of power and art is you know creates culture and and that is a very good question that that you're asking is you know what sort of culture do they want to create and and that's exactly what i'm kind of saying within within that space is perhaps what they need is to decide the direction that they're going to go mm-hmm. and maybe maybe they make it into um you know the a chinese traditional art museum or a uh uh, a, a, an, you know, Beijing opera space. Well, um, because you, you can, we can start to see the direction which it's going. And if you, if you take a take an historical long view, it gets quite entertaining because you can go to somewhere like Berlin and you can see exactly what that kind of art looked like from thirty or forty years before. And all oh, right, well, okay, we're recreating that stuff. Okay, well, yes. come come to a gallery in forty years' time and we shall see that. Mm. Yes, no, it's always always interesting to be in at the beginning end of, of of an historical curve, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, um, but the, the space itself is just it's it's a beautiful building. I, I you know I love it, and I, you know I love all the back stairs and and the the potential the potential for it. Well, another, uh, and I do, do hope they do something fun with it. Another potential, perhaps, would be some sort of corporate, corporate social responsibility initiative. I mean, that's a nice buzzword, but um, the, yeah. the successor firms for the dairy farm, well, dairy farm is still in existence. I mean, there's plenty of potential there for not a great deal of money in corporate terms to be put in 
there by and we'll jut in. That's one. Yep. That's yep. the obvious yep. example for it. Um, with with some freestanding background on the whole story of ICE and then linking into their role in Hong Kong. I mean, there, there's you know free corporate social responsibility PR snap bang there. But would that be too static? I mean, just kind of an exhibition space oh, around ICE. And you know, it's been there for oh no no. And but, so but, but the thing is, with that, you have all the other performance venues, but you have something that is static and is there permanent, which conceivably could be rotated. You could have forms of exhibit that could go through every three or four or six months, something on the Massachusetts ice trade, something on the development of a dairy industry here, something on artificial ice and then exporting it regionally. There's all sorts of possibilities there where that then brings people back to the venue because this is a problem with something like this you don't go once you want to think oh I, that's on there mm. i missed it the last time i'll go and see that does again. jardine have a space in hong kong that they nurture i mean the swires they nurture the philharmonic you can mm. see there's a lot i have of i have no idea what jardine's, uh, what jardine's nurture or don't but i mean if they don't nurture something then there's, an, maybe opportunity. there's an opportunity here there's an opportunity yeah, but there's, you know, if you're talking corporate social responsibility, for instance, there is that group, um, I forget their name, they're the, they're the dance group um, for, uh, for, for I think, mostly downs-based. Downs and they were looking for space, they were looking for funding, uh, they're, they've, they're exploding. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you could feasibly do something that's uh, much more inclusive, you know, for, for society to bring that in. Or, like you mentioned before, a, a corporate, you know, a... Um, uh, a corporate space, you know, just have a commercial have a commercial space where people can go in and rent the space. I'm not sure the can... artists in Hong Kong are going to appreciate that suggestion. Well, well, so much. well, well they, let's. They wouldn't, but it would be safe. Okay, okay, okay. We're just going to take a short break now for a news summary, uh, but stay with us. And when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about uh, uh, the future of the uh, Fringe Club in Central. Uh, quick look at the weather: uh, sunny intervals today, a few showers, isolated thunderstorms. Top temperature around 32 degrees. Um, that's in the urban areas, warmer in the new territories. Uh, uh, light to moderate southerly winds. The outlook, more showers tomorrow. Winds will become northeasterlies. The weather will improve in the following couple of days. Uh, uh, dry during the day. Currently it's 30 degrees, humidity 78%. The thunderstorm warning is in effect and will remain so until uh, 10 o'clock this morning. New summary with Ben Che. Mainland authorities are to have stamp duty on stock trading from today. The Finance Ministry and the State Taxation Administration said they wanted to invigorate the market and boost confidence. The move will see the tax cut to 0.05% from 0.1%. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is in Beijing for a four-day visit aimed at boosting business ties between the world's two largest economies. Ms. Raimondo will hold bilateral meetings today and tomorrow in the capital before heading to Shanghai. And Russian investigators have confirmed that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Wagner paramilitary group head who staged a mutiny against President Putin in June, was among those killed in a plane crash on Wednesday. We'll have more news for you at 10. The chief executive will announce his second policy address this October. The government is conducting a public consultation. Please share your views on various policy areas. I would like to have your views. We will do our utmost for people's livelihood and the economy. And together, let's make Hong Kong a better home. For details, please visit www.policyaddress.gov.hk. Brain, heart, lungs, liver, stomach. 
There are two more major organs at the back. Kidneys are low-key by nature. One in ten people suffer from kidney disease to varying degrees. Those with diabetes or high blood pressure or with family or past history of kidney disease are more at risk. It can be completely asymptomatic in the early stage. Regular checkups can help detect kidney disease early to avoid kidney failure. Let's care more about the kidneys for better kidney health. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Welcome back to Back Chat with Paul Zimmerman and me, Jim Gould. And also uh, with us uh, in our studio here is Jason Wordy, historian and columnist. Uh, we're talking about the future of the Fringe Club uh, because uh, non-profit organisations, including the current operator, are being invited to submit proposals uh, to manage the venue for a three-year period starting from uh, next year, from uh, next April. Uh, we're also joined uh, on the line now by John Batten, art critic and president of the International Association of Art Critics uh, Hong Kong, and uh, Deborah Manas, who's a singer-songwriter and regular performer at the Fringe Club. Um, perhaps, um, Deborah Manas, good morning to you. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah, we can. Well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so you're very f uh, familiar with the Fringe Club. Uh, how, how special is it as a performance venue? It's it's very special. Um, I launched my first um, album, Inspired, there in 2018, and then my second one, uh, Magician, in 2019, and um, I've played there many, many times. Um, so it's very special. It's an iconic place in a perfect location. Um, the people are great, you know. It's, yeah, very dear to my heart. And, it, and it's quite an intimate performance venue, right? It's, it's intimate and yet it has a great setup, a wonderful sound system and uh, a bar that people can have alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks. You know, as a, as a venue where it's located, um, it's it's very unusual and unique and for artists like myself independent artists without the big bucks and you know when you're unknown you don't have a huge following a non for a not for profit like the fringe club is quite critical to hong kong hmm. and have you worked with both the old and the new management at fringe club uh, i think uh, benny and catherine they left at some stage and then there's a new team have you worked with both I have worked with both. So earlier this year, I had a show at the Fringe Club with the new management. How was that? Um, I mean, and, uh, the, know, so there was, uh, there, was a, there was some kind of people were worried about the uh, ahead, how the sorry. new management was going to be. How did you find working with the new management? Hello. I thought, yeah, I'm here. I mean, I, th yeah. I thought they were fine. They were great. Um, very responsive. Um, you know, they, they were. They were looking at ways to to make um, events work where the artists didn't lose money. So that's, I think, um, something that mm. uh, something that interested me because I, I felt like, you know, they were they were keen to make money, <laughs> but mm. that's not always something that we can, you know we can do as an unknown artist mm -hmm. you know the, our show did did make some money for them but you know we had the conversation which i'd never had before mm -hmm. so okay. that was interesting so that's good. Mm -hmm. okay uh, john batten good morning 
Hi, hi, Jim. Thanks very much hi, for joining us. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, a special, uh, iconic building and a sort of uh, ideal location. What, what, what are your hopes for the Fringe Club going forward? Well, I hope it's better than it has been. I, I think um, uh, since about 1999, when they changed uh, what they did, um, because they had a, a yearly Fringe Festival, which was their their iconic mm. um, uh, festival for the year. And its reputation was built on this by getting international acts and, and local acts uh, to play. And they went to a, a format where they tried to match themselves, Hong Kong, with another city. So it became the City Festival. Um, and then uh, they went into a, uh, a phase of uh, trying to monetize everything in the building. And... Mm. Um, the uh, it was mentioned they had a a um, a renovation which needed to upgrade the fire facilities in the in the building and they kicked out the the two important uh, revenue raises for the building for it to be self sustainable and that was M at the fringe mm. and the pottery workshop in the basement and these two uh, uh, businesses uh, uh, contributed greatly by paying a rental, but also a, a fee for uh, on the profit that they made, uh, and they were kicked out. And then the the operators uh, became quite arrogant, and they put their they tried to run their own restaurants, um, and eventually they failed. Um, from the visual arts point of view, it's been a major disappointment for many years. The uh, the gallery at the ground floor uh, is basically a rental gallery and uh, it was funded if there was a contemporary art exhibition uh, it was generally funded by uh, a Hong Kong Arts Development Council grant uh, that the artists would have got to help pay the rental fee and then there was the, the dubious um, commercialization of the of the uh, of the exhibitions by charging a commercial uh, commission. I think it was mm. almost commercial mm. commission of 30% on sales. Um, so this... Uh, uh, so that's looking back, uh, looking forward. Where do you see this space going? I mean, it's, it's a great location. and the, the, I, I, I think are, it's a lovely are, uh, set of are, uh, venues within. for and against it, uh, Paul. And it, it's positive since it's a great location and there's the potential to do something. Uh, the negatives are uh, is that it's sort of a semi-government building. It, you know, I put it in the same area as the Cattle Depot, the Taipo Arts Centre, Oil Street and the Wong Chuk Hung studios that have just opened in Wong Chuk Hung. Mm. Um, the other area that's, that's uh, a potential pitfall is um, the, the potential to make money through running bars is much lessened as, as, you, as you've been hearing on your own program. Uh, all year, the bars are not getting the customers in uh, and the, I think the main problem is an audience. Uh, young people have, have different concerns now. And um, I, I think building an audience will be an issue. Having said all that, it is a great location and there is great potential. And hopefully uh, someone will come out of the, out of the woodwork to, to, to operate it. It will, it will definitely be at that peppercorn rental that the Fringe Club operates on, uh, $1 a year, I think it is, 
Um, and there is support from government. There's uh, Hong Kong Arts Development Council grants, a three-year grant, for example, that could help an, an operator to to fund uh, the programming, uh, the programming of, of what they happen there. But salaries and other other areas are, are difficult because generally the uh, the project grants for the ABC only cover uh, the costs of running an exhibition or a performance. Mm. Jason Wordy, do you have any thoughts about uh, how the Fringe Club could could build an audience, build well, a young I mean, audience? I, I think I think John's made a very interesting point there, which is something that tends to get a bit overlooked in Hong Kong at the moment, or rather, it's the, it's the elephant in the living room, and that is the demographic drop because bars and restaurants and so on are obviously not getting the patrons. That's been commented upon. Arts venues and like this won't be. Now, if you consider that something like 7 to 10% of the population are packed up and left, and then you split that one down and you think the number of aged between about 20 and 40 that are packed up and gone within that is very significant, then you pass that one down further to the type of people who are the kind who would go to a, a fringe club venue or something like that. It's a very, very significant number. These people are not here anymore. Well, and they're and not there's coming anymore. Well, there's 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 that, but but that's at a different level. You get people who are going up there because it's it's a bit cheaper or there's mm. better better value and so on. But for something like this, the kind of people who would go to an unusual music performance that's come in from I don't know Berlin or Amsterdam or something or a or a different form of visual arts or something a bit edgy, they're not here. That's the thing. You know, people say, oh, the, this particular nightclub area is dead. Well, yeah, who was going there? They're not here anymore. And they're not also coming to live here anymore. So that's, that's I think, the elephant in the room. Are you worried about the same, Deborah? Deborah Mannes? I'm, I'm here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm here. I've been, I've been listening and, and thinking. Um, I, I think um, there's a huge opportunity for uh, the government and also the corporates to create the market and create the audience uh, because I'm not just an artist I'm also in the HR and talent space and uh, mental health is a very very big issue in Hong Kong um, there is a market uh, because I've been performing and I've seen um, um, there's no dearth of of course musicians and performers but people want an outlet they just don't have the time and they don't have the mental space for new um, art and new music you know, when you're stressed, you gravitate towards what you know and what's, you know, your your old emotional connection. So the thing with Hong Kong is people are very stressed um, and the government and corporates need to do a lot more to create the link between mental wellness and the arts and especially the, cre the creative arts. Um, and I see there's opportunity there. For creative um, arts and, and performances and, and exhibitions. Yes, yes. Place, yes. places so, for people to go and relax exactly exactly so um and, and you know and people they, they almost feel guilty it's like a guilty pleasure to take time off to to um uh, to carve out time for the arts okay john uh, guilty pleasures at uh, the fringe club <laughs> no john say that again paul uh, guilty pleasures at the fringe club i mean where, where do you see the fringe club go in terms of which which space it's going to take in the arts world are we going to be um uh, more commercial or less commercial or be uh, uh, is there an opportunity for being fringe the, you know the, the the challenge is to link in with with young people uh they're 
Mm-hmm. Their, their rhythms and the way they do things is different from uh, the physical models that, that you and I yes. are used to. Um, I went to something at Typo Art Centre yesterday and um, I had my aura read by a young person and she was, um, and after we finished that and she wrote me a poem, I, I said, what do you do? And, and she, she kept emphasising that she as a young person uh, was a freelance designer and she used the internet for almost everything of her, of her, mm. of her, her, her transactions to make money. And I think, you know, we forget this. We need to, um, with a physical space like the Fringe Club, it needs to be something that is relevant. And that, that's easy to say. Um, but the, the important thing is to get young people involved in the planning and the, the, the ongoing management of, of the site. Um, because and, and, and John, just to like cut me, in with... We don't know everything. We may be experts, but we don't know everything. And we need to tap into the yes. other rhythms of, of what's happening in the city. And ju- just to cut in with what you mentioned there, I mean, that looking at younger people and where digital platforms come in, this is where it's so fascinating at the moment, because if there is a physical space where people genuinely don't feel comfortable, safe, whatever, expressing themselves, a digital platform works perfectly well. I've seen some fabulous digital museums. You go click, 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 there it is. Wonderfully curated stuff. And on a good screen, it's there in front of you and you don't have to worry about, you know, six o'clock knock on the door. Um, There it is. So you'll find quite a lot more younger people who'll be involved in that than something where they've got to physically go. And that's, that is something which I think we, we old fossils don't necessarily recognise, but you, you rightly point out there. Do we have any examples for uh, where, it's, where it's working right now in Hong Kong, spaces, art spaces, uh, John? Well, you know, they're, they're always in the cracks, Paul. And uh-huh. um, a few weeks ago I went down to see something uh, at a little art venue in, in uh, Daikok Choi. And on my way there, I, I, I think I got the MTR. And then there's, there's a no man's space in, in that complex where the Hong Kong Bank have, have its uh, back end uh, uh, offices. Mm. And it's downstairs, it's air conditioned. And I saw a uh, hundred dancers just using the space to, because it had mirrored walls and they were using the space uh, to dance. And it was just near the, the bus station there. And I think that these are the sort of things we need to tap into, that there is, a, there is an outlet uh, of energy. And young people do want spaces, but they need to be something that is attractive to them. And, you know, for example, I've got a friend who is a VJ, um, and, and she's like a DJ, but she uses video. Now, it's really difficult to find venues that have the proper video screens to do an event using music, you know, live live performance with projections. So there, there, there is something that we need to think of in mm. in when we're setting up the future Fringe Club. What mm. does it need? <clears throat> you know, in the old days, there used to be dance studios there. You know, with with mirrored walls that was all ripped out mm. um, because it was non-paying and the operators were not interested. They wanted things that paid mm. money. You know, like a commercial visual art show. Or a, or a performance with a paying audience. So we need to have a little bit of both, a little bit of 
paying, but also we need to give give space to to people to do things. Well, let's, see, again, let's see where the government can come up with that in terms of a uh, a, a bid. Yeah. Uh, have we the, the standard specifications? Uh, are we are we looking for it. We haven't seen those. We don't know what the process is exactly for the, uh, for the bid for the for the space. But it's uh, it's interesting and to see where the government can. Uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing attitude. a lot more. We'll be hearing a lot more mm. over the next uh, few months anyway. I'm afraid we're out of time for this uh, part of the programme but uh, uh, thank you there to uh, all of our guests. That was uh, uh, John Batten you heard uh, latterly, uh, art critic and president of the International Association of Art Critics uh, Hong Kong. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Jason Wordy, historian and columnist. Uh, thank you to Deborah Manis, uh, singer-songwriter and regular performer at The Fringe and before uh, 9.30 we heard from Robert Rogers who's a special events uh, professional and principal of events man and lecturer at Hong Kong U Space. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Secretary for Housing, Winnie Ho. Happy birthday to RTHK's 95th anniversary. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned, Stay tuned with Hong Kong. And for the last uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're turning our attention to uh, another topic, uh, a rather different topic, and that is the history of uh, tattoos. Well, they're still art. Yeah. <laughs> well, well exactly. uh, sure. Everything's uh, arts-related uh, this morning. Yeah, you, you may be aware that there was a, um, uh, an exhibition over the weekend at, at the uh, Hong Kong uh, Convention and Exhibition Centre. Uh, this was the uh, the seventh edition of the Hong Kong China International Tattoo Convention. Mm. Um, some very uh, colourful designs <laughs> on show there, um, and, and and the visitors who uh, who arrived uh, showing off their uh, tattoos. Quite, quite, yes, yes. We, we, we've got an expert on the topic uh, joining us now, and and that is uh, Dr. Lars Krutak who's a tattoo anthropologist and uh, research associate at the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's also an author and um, anthropological consultant for National Geographic. Uh, Dr. Krutak, good morning. Uh, good morning to you. Can you hear me? Again? Yes, we, Absolutely. We, can hear you, we can hear you loud and clear. Thanks very much for joining us. Awesome. So uh, I know that you, you've done a great deal of uh, research on this topic uh, uh, with uh, indigenous people and, uh, and other groups. So, to, so just um, tell us, I mean, how, how did tattoos uh, really start? Yeah, well, the oldest evidence we have for tattooing comes from Europe, and it's a 5,200-year-old Neolithic dubbed Iceman Utsi, because he was discovered in the Utsal Alps about 20-something years ago, melting oh, yeah. out of a glacier in one um and interestingly about 80 percent of his tattoo marks he has about just over 60 geometric markings line up with classical acupuncture points so we believe that these tattoos were probably used in some medicinal way um and they were in places that he couldn't have apply, applied them to his body himself so obviously he was in the hands of another individual maybe a healer um, of some sort to apply these tattoos. And because they're so dark on his skin, it is believed that they were applied multiple times throughout the course of his life because he was uh, suffered from various ailments. Hmm. Now, the second oldest tattoos we have uh, come from the African continent. 
and there are two mummies from the pre-dynastic uh, period of Egypt. They're almost as old as Utsi. They're coming around 5,000 years old. But they're a male and female um, from the site of Gebelin. And actually, they've been in the collections of the British Museum for over 100 years. But the tattoos weren't very clear until they were photographed under infrared photography just a few years ago. And these are figurative tattoos. So the woman bears a, sort of a series of like four S-shaped markings on one shoulder and like a, what looks to be a staff, which could be a symbol of authority on the other shoulder. And then the man himself... Um, uh, he has like a, a bull and Barbary sheep, which could be related to, you know, signs of virility or masculinity. Um, but one un, uh, sort of untold story that a lot of people don't know about, um, you know, you typically speaking, we look to mummies as certainly the best places to look for firm evidence of ancient tattooing. But I believe myself, um, studying some of the material culture from China, uh, that members of the Neolithic Majayao culture, who live primarily in the Upper Yellow River region in eastern Gangchu and northern Sichuan from about 3300 to 2000 BC, probably practiced tattooing as well, because many of the ceramic anthropomorphic vessels uh, that they produce that show very realistic heads of women, um, they look like they have heavily tattooed faces, especially chin markings and, chat and tattoos on, or what I would believe to be tattoos on the cheeks. And the reason why I believe that is because nearly identical tattoos continue to be worn by indigenous Dulong women of Yunnan and other ethnic groups like mm -hmm. the Naga mm -hmm. of Northwest, Myanmar, Northeast India, among other places mm -hmm. in Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, leaping ahead uh, to the present day, um, it certainly does seem as though uh, uh, tattoos are becoming uh, more popular in many parts of the world, uh, uh, particularly with younger people. Uh, how do we explain that? Well, I think tattoos are more widely accepted uh, in Western society, obviously, obviously in the workplace, um, at least in my country, in the military and many other countries. And of course, you know, there are a lot of global superstars from uh, entertainment industry, the sports uh, industry hmm. that that are decked out in many, many tattoos. Um, and, you know, it's it's a way to you know express you yourself personally. And I know a lot of tattoos that I study in the indigenous world have a lot to do with with talking about a person's biography, you know, their identity, where they come from, maybe who their ancestors were or their way to commemorate significant life events. Um, and they also help people um, sort of heal from various traumas as well. Is, is there a fashion now in, in, in tattoos, in the type of tattoos or the, or the shape or form that, uh, that people apply? You know, there are the popular ones that are even fashionable. Do we see trends? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of collectors of tattooing of, or of tattooists, just like people collect fine art, you know, uh, old master drawings or contemporary art. Well, there are people out there that collect, you know, tattoos from the top artists or those that excel in particular styles. You mean there photographs of it, not the uh, the actual tattoo? What's that? You, you mean photographs of it, of it rather than the actual tattoo? No, I mean, people no, People definitely collect uh, artistry from the top artists. Um, on their like body. People travel. Asia, is it, is it photographs? Is it on their on their person? I mean, how, how do they how do they collect how do they collect, it? How do they collect it? I mean, it sounds a bit. Oh, you tattoo? You collect tattoos on your skin? Okay. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Right. There are even tattoo. There are even uh, companies that preserve the tattoos on your skin after you die, so that they can be shared amongst your family members. Now, that might seem a little macabre to some, um, but some people have invested tens of thousands of dollars in their body art. 
and they want to, uh, you know, keep them in living memory amongst their family members or even donate them to a museum. There are museums that also pay individuals to get the works, collect the works of top tattooists on their bodies. Are there certain types of tattoos that are becoming very popular? I mean, the, the Japanese style, that, uh, uh, art styles that we've seen in the last century, I've, I've seen them kind of reflected in, in some of the very large tattoos that people apply. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, China has its sort of unique tattooing style in the sense that a lot of colorful uh, cultural heroes and mythological characters uh, and ancient, ancient personages and uh, and even animals that have, you know, cultural references to like, you know, a longevity or good luck or good fortune um, are tattooed on the body. And some of these tattoos look very similar in the Japanese genre of tattooing. Um, but I would say that in China, there there's definitely different styles that are unique to themselves, like how certain animals are, are portrayed or depicted, um, just as they are in Japan. And of course, you know, not that long ago, um, having tattoo marks certain, certainly in China was a... Uh, a mark of criminality. You know, if if someone had certain tattoos and they were assumed to be uh, members of secret societies or, or anti-government groups, and uh, they they were therefore a dangerous thing to have. Uh, they were considered a, a mark of group loyalty. You know, someone didn't just wake up one morning with a dragon all over their body. You know, it was, they had to purposefully have it put there. Um, so it showed that they were prepared to to die if necessary for the group that they joined. But that's shifted in, in recent years, at least in some demographics, wouldn't you say? Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, we talk about criminality of tattooing in China and even in Japan. I mean, this goes back more than 2,000 years. Um, uh, I know that in China there were uh, up to 100 crimes that were punishable by tattooing over 2,000 years ago. And oftentimes these, you're going to call them penal tattoos, were applied to very prominent uh, parts of the body, especially the face. Um, and so for the, the next 2000 years, they've always been sort of associated with these with criminal elements and the same in Japan, actually, uh, I know around 500 AD, there was a emperor that, that someone attempted to assassinate him. And so sort of barring from the Chinese tradition, this person received a facial tattoo that perpetually, you know, marked him as an outcast. And in Japan, you know, the very beautiful, colorful tattooing traditions uh, practiced there, we, scholars believe that actually they developed as a way to cover up uh, these tattoos associated with criminality um, and punishment, mm -hmm. which is interesting in itself. But, yeah. no, I mean, with, but there's, with... still, there's still groups, I know, subcultures I, that continue to tattoo as a, mem as a form of uh, of identity and membership, I mean, especially in Russia and other places like that. No, I mean, I, I certainly remember growing up, you know, people who had tattoos, it was almost a, a way of saying, you know, which job do you want to disqualify yourself from ever having, you know, um, by, by having one. Yeah, so. But it's much more acceptable now, I, as you say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I've also met um, government workers from Hong Kong um, in my travels in Thailand who are Buddhists and they firmly believe in the power of, of Theravada Buddhist tattoos that are given across Thailand and even parts of Laos and Cambodia, um, which are forms of empowerment amongst other things. And they r continue to r visit annually to collect more and more of these Sakyan 
or magical tattoos, even though, you know, I know this one individual when I met him 15 years ago, if his if his boss noticed that he had these tattoos in prominent area. <laughs> okay. Dr. Cusack, I'm sorry, sorry to, uh, as we could go on talking about this for ages, sorry to cut you off because we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, Otherwise we're going to be tattooed. It, well, that's, that's, that's right for running into the time signal. Uh, Dr. Lars Krutek, uh, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us from the uh, Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Stay Cheers. with us. We've got, uh, we've got uh, the brunch coming up and a new summary before that. 